0: I am not a pest, Ramona Quimby told her big sister, Beezus. Then stop acting like a pest, said Beezus, whose real name was Beatrice. She was standing by the front window waiting for her friend, Mary Jane, to walk to school with her. I'm not acting like a pest. I'm singing and skipping, said Ramona, who had only recently learned to skip with both feet. Ramona did not think she was a pest. No matter what others said, she never thought she was a pest. The people who called her a pest were always bigger, and so they could be unfair. Ramona went on with her singing and skipping. This is a great day, a great day, a great day, she sang. And to Ramona, who was feeling grown up in a dress instead of play clothes, this was a great day, the greatest day of her whole life. No longer would she have to sit on her tricycle watching Beezus and Henry Huggins and the rest of the boys and girls in the neighborhood go off to school. Today, she was going to school too. Today, she was going to learn to read and write and do all the things that would help her catch up with Beezus.
1: Your shelf for mine, talking sophisticated topics all the time. Your shelf for mine, a kickback, relax, crack a book, unwind at your shelf for mine. Your shelf.
0: Hello, and welcome to your shelf or mine, or mine, or mine. I'm Becky Standall, Youth Services Librarian at the Longview Public Library. I'm Joanne Dallas. I'm a clerk at the Longview Public Library.
2: Uh, I'm Austin Brigden, Administrative Assistant at the Longview Public Library. And
3: I'm Jacob Collins, Library Technician at the Longview Public Library.
0: Welcome, everybody. We have a big crew today. We're talking about Beverly Cleary. Before we get started talking about Beverly Cleary, I thought since we had Joanna Jacob online, they could talk to us a little bit about the graduate school project that they've been doing at the library.
1: Okay, so uh, both Jacob and I are students at the University of Washington High School, which is the library program there. We're in our final year, and we had to do a capstone project.
3: And our capstone project is called Story Walks, and it's basically a picture book that's been taken apart, put on some stands, and then you walk the trail to read the story as you go.
1: So we did one at Lake Sacagawea. It was called
3: Fatima's Great Outdoors by Ambrine Tariq.
1: Um, and it, we had a lot of success. We had over 80 people comment on it, uh, either through the survey or through signing the guest book. Our second one is ongoing right now. It's around the grounds of the Longview Public Library, starting at the squirrel statue. And the book is Oi Frog.
3: And we've received some pretty good feedback on that one so far as well.
1: How long is Oi Frog going to be up
0: to walk? it's uh until this sunday is the last day so you're gonna miss it everybody but one of the cool things about this project that joanna jacob are doing is that they're gathering all this data uh, responses from people who participate and they're going to make recommendations to the library and the parks department so the city about uh if and where we should install a permanent story walk so that's very exciting and we actually already have funding lined up for that. so.
2: Yes, thanks to the American Rescue Plan Act. And the,
0: some, and the Washington State Washington Library. State library. <laughs> Do we have any other um, news about the library right now?
2: The restoration is continuing, noticing new stuff every day. day. Um, cleaning off the bricks. They just cleaned off the cupola.
0: Mm-hmm. I took a picture of him pressure washing the cupola. And uh, we're making a lot of good progress on the mobile library project.
2: Yeah, everybody out there should look forward to our May 26th Council Workshop. Everybody's free to attend that, learn more about the project, voice your opinion in the meeting that follows. Uh, We'd love to see you there.
0: All right. Let's get down to it. I picked for March for our Your Shelf Challenge, Our Shelf Challenge, the author Beverly Cleary. Her birthday is actually coming up April 12th. I believe it's April 12th which is Drop Everything and Read Day. And um, I thought that would align really good if we read her in March and then kind of moved into celebrating her birthday. So you could listen to this podcast to do that. Beverly Cleary is a regional writer. I know I read Beverly Cleary a lot when I was a kid. I might have read everything that was out at the time. She first published uh, Henry Huggins was her first book in the 1950s.
2: 1959.
0: 1959. And I read them growing up. And then even after I was like in high school and not reading her books anymore, she was still publishing books for children, which is pretty amazing. So that is my background with Beverly Cleary. Also, I had had the Oregon Art Beats program on OPB did a special on Beverly Cleary to celebrate her 100th birthday a few years ago. And I have a friend who edited that show. So that's also why I wanted to talk about it.
1: Um, I I didn't read her growing up. I'm not from this area, but I know that she was still popular in Canada. Um, I don't know. I, I had a single mom, and she had four kids, so <laughs> it wasn't her fault. But I did discover her later in life when I was reading to my kids. So I think I read, I read Ramona the Past. I might have read them a few more, and then they wanted to move on to other things, but I checked all the Ramona books out from the library, and I finished reading them on my own.
0: Wow. So, yeah, and
1: I would definitely recommend to any parents to read, read them, even if you read them out loud to your kids, or even if your kids don't, don't want to listen, just read them yourself, because there's a lot of insight, I think, into children into their fears, and how real their fears are, and how they just want to be loved. So it's a good reminder, I think, for parents.
0: Yeah, that's really struck me rereading the books about how like close she is to like the emotional I don't know, landscape of being a very small child. And she said in that OPB documentary we watched about how she has a very good memory, and that that's she thinks that's the reason she's been successful, because she can really remember being a child
1: yeah i have a quote from um ramona and her mother and her mother says haven't you noticed grown-ups aren't perfect asked mrs quimby especially when they are tired then how come you expect us kids to be so perfect all the time demanded ramona good question said mrs quimby i'll have to think of an answer (laughs) so yeah Parents can relate to that
2: I had never read anything by Beverly Cleary before this month. I don't know why. I mean, I knew the name, and I knew I knew she had a connection to Portland, and that she was really, really, really old. It's um, ex- like exceptionally over a over a hundred years old that that came up a lot, so I came, I came into this cold.
3: I also came into this cold. Um, I had never read Be- Beverly Cleary as a kid. Um, I read a lot of Magic Treehouse and then I jumped from Magic Treehouse to Harry Potter. And so there was that kind of like middle chapter book stage that I just never explored. So there's a lot of books from in that range that I'm discovering now that I'm working in youth services. And when I went to UW, Doc Martin, who is the uh, program chair at the University of Washington, she's actually the Beverly Cleary endowed professor there. And when she introduced us to herself. She talked about how she was good friends with Beverly Cleary, saying she was over 100 and still writing. And so that was kind of my my first bit of hearing about her as an adult.
1: Yeah, they actually had, Doc Martin did a celebration of life last year when she passed, an online celebration of life that I attended. And they shared some stories about meeting her. And uh, she said she had to have music because every celebration needs music, but she couldn't find any songs that had the word Beverly in them. So she made two other professors who were musically inclined write a song <laughs> called Beverly, and they actually did a little video, and they, they showed it during the celebration. And then she, had other, she invited other librarians on to talk about their favorite books. They also talked about how Beverly Cleary was a 1939 iSchool alum back when it was a bachelor's in in librarianship. And they shared some stories about how um, she wasn't, she didn't do very well. One of her teachers said her writing wasn't good and she would never be... uh, (laughs) Never become a, a writer or a children's writer. And the, the iSchool named the University of Washington's Alumnus Summa Laud Dignata, which was the UW's highest honor for alumni. And the one stipulation they usually give when they give an alum an honor was they have to come in person to receive it. But she was the only one that they made an exception to. They allowed her son to come receive the honor for her.
0: Yeah, that's. Um, she was 102. Yeah. When she died, reading her like memoirs and stuff, I started *Girl from Hill and I'm about halfway through. Because I read her and she was publishing when I was growing up, I think of her as like more of a contemporary, and I guess she is. But then it's also like amazing to to remember how old she was she talks in the book like her first memory is all of the church bells in town ringing to celebrate the end of the First World War.
2: Yeah, I think that sort of goes along with how well those books stand up. You know, I was reading Henry Huggins and thinking about the fact that it was published in 1959 and it still speaks really well to the present day.
1: Well, I think it's because she just wrote about ordinary families that it was just about regular people. And I love the story of why she why she wrote her first book. They said, because uh, a little boy visiting her library came up to ask her with attitude, where are the books about kids like us? And doesn't she mention in her memoir about the books she grew up with were English books about kids that had nannies and were always trying to teach morals or for kids to become good and uh and i know reading the ramona books ramona definitely <laughs> isn't isn't like that. Ramona's such a brat
0: uh yeah she talks about she wasn't like interested in reading for a really long time and i think she remembers it's she she caught the smallpox as a child one of the neighbor boys um she had had chicken pox And everyone thought that he he had chickenpox. So she sent her over to like keep him company because they thought, you know, she'd already had it. And it turned out he didn't have chickenpox. He had smallpox. And so she got smallpox. And so she was really sick for a long time, you know, as a kid. It took, I think, a big chunk of a school year. And her having this like her mom had brought her this book and kind of read it. And first kind of glimmer of understanding that maybe there was something she didn't know that she could learn from a book. But I don't think it was until she took maybe third grade yeah, where she, she liked it.
2: She talked about accidentally enjoying a book because she resisted it. For, and and uh, the girl from Yamhill talks a lot about her relationship with her mother. And, and it seems like she resisted a lot of things her mother wanted her to do. And reading was one of them until one day, you know, like she let her guard down <laughs> and, and enjoyed a book. And then it went from there.
1: Yeah, I think the book that she remembers really liking at first was called The Dutch Twins. Yeah. And she said that she just picked it up wanting to look at the pictures. And then she realized that she was reading it. And I just think that uh, really enforces to me how important it is to have kids pick their mm-hmm. reading material because they're going to want to read it. And that's a, that's how they practice.
0: Yeah, and to let them look at pictures she talks in her memoir too about like really liking the funny pages and there's this part where she is going to like a concert because her dad had worked security at this dance hall um and sitting there her mom on a saturday night her mom had picked up the sunday paper and feeling like she had a glimpse into the future and she would know what like the katzenberg kids did before everybody else did but that she really liked reading the comics and it made me think oh if if she was a kid now, she'd have so many comics to read. Graphic novels. Yeah. yeah, Do you guys want to start talking about her books? Do we have more things to say about Beverly Cleary? Um,
1: I, I can share when uh, Doc Martin visited her, and this is on the the iSchool's website, so I felt fine sharing it. She's, she she uh, said, uh, two days after I started my job as the Beverly Cleary Professor for Children and Youth Services. In the fall of 2016, a bunch of them went down to visit her on Carmel-by-the-Sea in her assisted living facility, and she said what struck me most was her humility and that despite being a centenarian, Mrs. Cleary had strong opinions about things and conveyed her feelings with clarity and conviction. While she could surely have had fancy furniture befitting a famous author, Mrs. Cleary greeted us from her well-loved, well-worn, comfy yellow chair in which she wrote many of her stories. So I thought that was really neat yeah. to learn that she was very down to earth. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I really would recommend that. It's on Oregon Artbeat. There's like a link in the Beanstack Challenge, so you can just watch it on the OPB website. It's a like half hour long. And they, they do talk to her a little bit, and you kind of see that. I mean, we think of that visual from that. And Doc
1: Martin also shared that she asked her um, if when she was writing if she would give it to any of her peers to read and edit and she said no she said she did it the first time once and it was so clear that she wrote way better than any of her peers so she didn't want to (laughs) spark feelings of envy so she said she only let her husband read her manuscripts before she sent them off. And that she never had a manuscript rejected.
0: No. Wow. yeah. I remember, no, it was in that documentary. Yeah. She's talking about, oh, I wrote Henry Huggins. And so, you know, I put it in an envelope and just mailed it to-
2: To this publisher.
0: Yeah. And then she's like, and I thought probably six weeks back I'd hear, you know, I would either be looking for my manuscript being returned in a big envelope or I'd have an acceptance letter. She's was like, and then I got an acceptance. Yeah. Whoa, the first try.
2: <laughs> yeah. And there was an editor on that documentary who talked about how rare- it is for them to get a manuscript like that mm-hmm. or to have an author whose first book comes in whole and and gets accepted right away. I was surprised to, to uh, I think of her so much as an Oregon writer and she's so identified with Portland to think, she, you know, she really spent most of her life in California, most of her long, <laughs> yeah. long life in California. She left Oregon when she was 18. But the last book I read, uh, Dear Mr. Henshaw, was very California. So mm-hmm. I thought that was interesting.
0: yeah. That documentary also talks about this group of fans, including Eric Kimmel, who is an author himself, who fundraised in the mid-90s to put that Beverly Cleary sculpture garden in um, her neighborhood on Cliquitat Street, where she grew up and where all the Ramona books are set.
2: It was so sweet. They like they did they did different kinds of fundraising. They did like penny jars in the children's section of libraries, and kids would put their change in, and then the libraries would like write checks to this Friends of Ramona and Beesus mm-hmm. or Friends of Ramona and Henry fund, and they did
1: it. That's yeah. pretty sweet. Yeah, <laughs> really cute.
0: I'd like. I've never been there. It's at Grant Park.
1: Yeah, there's supposed to be a book that's a walking tour of all the. All the places that she mentions in her yeah. books are the names, and you can go by her house. I guess that she lived mm-hmm. on. Was it Clickitat?
0: I think State? actually she lived on.
2: She lived on a different street, but she liked the sound of Clickitat. She said in the documentary that it sounded like knitting needles to her. Yeah. So she, but she lived like on a street close to Clickitat.
1: Yeah, I was always wanted to do that walking tour. Yeah, maybe
0: they'll bring it back now. Post-pandemic. Yeah. So we had started uh, a few weeks ago, Austin, and I went down to S- Silverton, and we started listening to Jesus and Ramona, and it's read by Stalker Channing. And she's do- she awesome. does a good job, but, man, is uh, Ramona real annoying.
2: <laughs> very spirited uh, performance.
0: <laughs> she does, like, a Ramona voice. It's like...
2: I couldn't do it. Yes, we could. did it for a while. <laughs> no, I couldn't. I couldn't. We listened uh, for a while, and then it was like...
0: Okay. And I felt so, like... I think when I was a kid and I read them I was like oh Bezus is such like a wet blanket. But I really felt for Bezus this time. Um she's just a very serious kid, you know, and 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 she like she has to struggle thinking like she doesn't have any imagination. She's not as creative as Ramona. Ramona can like make a game out of anything and poor Bezus is just like I don't know.
1: As the youngest of four, <laughs> I definitely identified with Ramona. <laughs> Not that I was that rambunctious. I definitely was a rule follower, too. But I think just always, I think, admiring her spunkiness Mm -hmm. and how that can be a roadmap for a lot of young girls. Maybe not so much anymore, but, you know, in the olden days when they were expected that girls were docile and, you know, supposed to follow the rules. But I think Ramona could be a really good roadmap to show other girls that it's okay to show your mm-hmm. your emotions.
0: Bezus is always like Ramona. <laughs> <laughs> you're supposed to be playing in the sand pile.
2: There's there's that scene in uh, when you're talking about Bezus. There's that scene in Ramona and Bezus where they're like at a painting. Cl- it's Bezus's painting class. Yeah. Bezus is like so tied up in knots about like she's got this real kind of woo-woo art teacher who's like trying to get them to be creative and she's like just wants to do it right yeah how do I do it right
0: right and she's like I want you to draw like an imaginary creature imaginary animal and Bezos is like oh no
1: (laughs) I liked how curious about the world Robona was and I think she could have been uh, a scientist when she grew up (laughs) or like some of the stem occupations because She liked to see what happened, you know, like when she squeezed out all the toothpaste from the toothpaste tube or when she pulled the boing boing curls or wiped her chalk hands on the cat or went blowing bubbles in the lemonade, just about the boing boing curls. I always wanted curly hair when I grew up but my daughter has curly hair. When I was reading these books, I would constantly pull
0: her curls. Austin, Austin has boing, boing yeah, curls. He does. Yeah, does. <laughs> yeah, and she's so, like, not, like, grossed out by anything. Yeah. Like, they're in in uh, Ramona the Pest, where she decides she's gonna, like, marry Henry Huggins, she has like, this worm ring. Right. Like, and every day she'd pick, like, a worm out of a puddle and, like, make a ring out of it until it died yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she's just like whatever
2: <laughs> yeah
0: there's the makings of a scientist yeah those she, scenes are so vivid like i'd remember like from when i was really little like you know her waiting for the present or sitting there for the present and what was the other thing in
2: oh man And playing she's playing so, in the mud and she thinks about stuff. things so deeply and it's like that question she asks, in that quote joanne read from ramona and her mother She really challenges the adults because she thinks things through so deeply. But when I read, the one I got to was Ramona the Past, and I laughed so much. But there's this scene where there's like a Halloween parade, and she goes dressed as the witch, and she's going to be the baddest witch. And she's really into the idea that nobody can tell who she is. She can pull the curls with impunity.
0: Uh She's wearing a mask. Masks were very big. She has that
2: mask, but then she starts to have this existential crisis about how nobody can. Nobody knows who she is and does she even exist? <laughs> and so she has to like run inside and make a little sign that says that it's her. Yeah, that, that has like her a name tag. With her little cue that's a cat. Yeah. Yeah. Everything is so particular and Beverly Cleary does so much in such small space. Yeah. I mean, you're reading, it's a quick book and just so much happens.
1: Yeah, I think she, like I think one of her fears is unrequited affection. Like, she really just wants to be loved for who she is. Like, even if she makes a mistake, even if she doesn't have all the things that her friends have, there's that story about the red boots Mm -hmm. and then she gets laughed at. Even if others don't show love, I think she's real, real loving and protective of her family and just really wants
0: to be loved for who she is. Just like all kids. Yeah, and then Ramona the Past... I was like, and I think, like Beverly Cleary's mother must have been this way. But I was so every time I'm like surprised. I'm like, she's going to let her do that. Um, Ramona gets so upset that she thinks that her teacher doesn't like her that she refuses to go to school for like two weeks. Yeah, that went into flown in my house. (laughs) Her mom's like, Ramona, what can we do to get you to go back to school?
2: (laughs) When when you read the memoirs, you really see. I mean, Beverly Cleary talks about she's not Ramona. She was never that, you know, intense. But you see that trait, the same traits. And her, if you got, I highly recommend reading A Girl from Yamhill. And so far, her second memoir, uh, My Own Two Feet, is really good, too. But her mother is this really intense person who is a teacher, doesn't act, uh, trained as a teacher, really educated, doesn't end up getting to really work in her field, is very, puts all her energy into obsessing about Beverly and what kind of girl she's going to be. Because
1: she was an only
0: child, mm-hmm. right?
1: Right,
2: So that yes. was probably all her focus. She was an only child. And I think and,
0: that she, they had had, like, she, Beverly Cleary talks about a time where she remembers her mother telling her that the stork was going to bring a baby. yeah, and, and then it never came, her it mom had, like, a late mind. miscarriage. And, yeah. yeah. Oh, it was a
2: crazy story. Yeah. So that's when they still live in Yamhill, and so all of her father's family is there too. And her father's brother Ray is the pharmacist in town. And something's going wrong with the delivery, and they call a doctor, but he shows up so drunk he can't do anything. And so they call Ray, who's a pharmacist, and he brings the medication and illegally gives it to the saves her life, and then forces the um, doctor to sign a prescription in the morning when he's sober. Wow. But but what you said about affection, I was made me think of her mother because she she talks a lot in the book about her mother like never
0: hugging or never kissed her. her
2: you know she comes home oh. one day and she's like she's like other girls or other mothers hug and kiss their little girls and her mom laughs and does it and that's the only time in her life it happened and she she wow. talks about all these like and you see that come up in her books yeah her mother was very
0: yeah, I think um, like she has a lot of com-
2: withholding of her. Passion. Yeah, but she has
0: a lot of compassion for her mother too. In this, in the memoirs, she talks about um, the first. I think they were, she was five when they moved to Portland. Growing up on the farm, like her mom was a far- farm wife, and so she was always like canning and you know doing all these chores and stuff. And then later in the de- depression, or her father loses his job she's really really concerned Ramona's father loses his job her mother becomes really concerned that they're going to move back to the farm because he just leased right. the farm and they still own it and uh, she confesses to Beverly that she felt like a slave living there and she would never wants to go back and she's so worried about it yeah. and I feel like her mother was probably the kind of person who in the time that they lived didn't have the kinds of options that she really would have you know needed or enjoyed to no. have like a more, you know, more happy no. life.
1: Yeah, I imagine that would have been very
0: isolating. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and Ramona talks about like there was no other children there.
2: She uh she paints such really beautiful portraits of both her parents, like in all their complexity. You know, her father is a farmer from a three-generation farm family who is really good at it, but there's no price for controls uh, or subsidies. And so he will produce all these great crops and then still lose money. And so he has to lease the farm. And then he ends up working as a guard in a basement all day. And he just loves the outdoors. So like, there's her mother on the one Mm -hmm. side, and then her father is sort of always sad. Sad and tired.
1: You can see that in Ramona and her father when he loses his job. And she you can really see that... I think she feels responsible like she's got and probably Beverly did too, that she's got to find a solution mm-hmm. to this problem, which is a reminder that kids see and feel they're so smart and observant and they know everything that's going on. You can't hide stuff from them that's happening in the house. And uh, so she probably felt that that weight mm-hmm. on her shoulders, just like Ramona did. Yeah. It's
0: it's really neat she uh reading the book and seeing like yeah like the little inspirations that you like oh that's I see where she would got you know this experience from in the you know what Ramona goes through Yeah right, you books. can see those
1: connections mm-hmm. I bet.
2: She tells us a little and this is the last thing I'll say about the memoir but she the same kind of like little quirky scenes that are in the fiction and there's this one where she's so happy on the farm as a little kid but she'll go out to these apple trees and she talks about the apples and her favorite thing to do was to pick an apple and take a bite and throw it away. She would eat apples, but only first bites because those are the best bites.
1: <laughs> That's like the top of the muffin and the top <laughs> yes. of the cupcake. <laughs>
0: That's definitely something Ramona would do. She did, to, right? Oh, that's right. why they okay. had
1: to make the applesauce. Because they had oh. a bag of apples. And she just took one bite out of all the apples. <laughs> and then so they had to figure out what to do. And that's why they made applesauce.
0: <laughs> I forget which one. Yeah, that, that was then. like a later one. Because I'd read for this, I read, we re- listened to Beezus and Ramona. Um, and it is like, I kind of cannot stress enough how, like, every chapter, I'm like, I remember this, like, crystal clear. Like, I remember Ribsy getting stuck in the bathroom. She locks him in there, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, and then Ramona the Past, and and then I Dear Mr. Henshaw, which is not part of that same series, but it was also very good. But, Austin, you also read Henry Huggins, right?
2: I did. My goal starting out was to read one book from all the major series i didn't make it to ralph the mouse but i did read henry huggins it was interesting because it was her first book and she talks about like she didn't really know how to write a book and it reads much more like a collection of stories you know disconnected stories about Hen- about this little boy It was very good but you i could see i so i read henry huggins and then i read ramona the pest and you could really see how she how much better she'd gotten in that, those 10 years between when Henry Huggins came out and run him out of the past. But still it's, it's, it's a really good, and there's a lot of those same kind of iconic scenes. He finds this dog and he tries to take it on a city bus in Portland. And the driver tells him he has to put it in a box and he goes through this whole rig roll. And then of course, Ribsy gets out of his hands. He tries to hide it on the hide the dog on the bus, and Ribsy gets out of his hands and knocks over a woman's bag of apples, which roll around all over the <laughs> the bus. And
1: apples uh. played big in her life. <laughs> well, yeah, growing up in this area, I guess. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, so I'm curious. I'd be curious to read some more Henry books and see how they are, mm-hmm. what they're like. She writes, I think there's like a little, yeah. She wrote a, like a little introduction to this first Henry book talking about the process of becoming a writer and Mm -hmm. that same story that Joanne referenced about little boys in Yakima and thinking about them. Because she sat there and was like, I don't know what to write about. And then she started thinking about all these little boys. And she talks about how the teachers would bring her little boys too who they couldn't get interested in anything.
0: In the documentary, she's like, she said she wanted to be a writer and she thought, she sat down, you know, to, to write a book. She's like, I thought I would write... A story about, like, a accomplished uh, young woman, you know, and she just ended up writing about a kid. <laughs> and she
2: tells this other story, too, that contributed to her, her, sort of her idea about the state of children's literature, where she was like, it was after she left Yakima, and she was working the Christmas rush at a bookstore, and uh, and they were supposed to hand sell these children's books, and she started reading them. She was like, these are terrible. <laughs> She's like, I could do better than this.
1: That's why I admire her so much as a librarian because I think she saw a need and she mm-hmm. filled it. Yeah. Not that we all can write awesome children's books,
0: but <laughs> that's stand the test of time. Yeah. Yeah, there's only a few things like reading it where like it reminds you of, of the time it was written in. Like I remember in Ramona, like her father reads the evening paper. You know, we don't have evening papers anymore. Or um the
2: costs of things. Yeah. yeah. But it doesn't distract at all. I mean, you don't, you can sort of read, especially this When I was reading Ramona the Past and completely forget it was published in the 60s. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I had another teacher in one of the, on our uh, children's lit class that we took say that she's one of the few authors that stands the test of time like that, where it's a lot of the themes and issues are applicable to children today as they were back then.
0: Yeah, and they haven't needed to go back and change anything. Like, I think about Judy Bloom, who I think is another children's author who will also really stand the test of time. But And maybe because her books deal with kind of a little older kids going through, like, puberty and stuff. But they have gone through and made, like, edits to the books to, like, you know, change, I guess, like, technologies and stuff a little bit so that they're relevant to kids today. But these ones, like, don't don't need it.
2: Did anybody here ever read any of the Ralph books?
0: I have. I have not.
2: You read the Ralph the Mouse book? Yeah.
0: I've read all of the Ralph the Mouse books and I think I've I've actually read The Mouse and the Motorcycle like a couple of times as an adult doing like book clubs with children. They're so fun. So like Ralph is a mouse and he lives in a hotel and um there's like a little toy motorcycle that's just his size and so uh he gets to to ride it around and he's always like he loves it but he's like trying not to get caught and they talked in that documentary about it's like her son was the inspiration for that he had like this little motorcycle and all these little toys he's playing with and his mom was like Well, oh, it's like the right size for a little mouse
2: yeah well yeah he was playing with these toys and then her neighbor called her over in the garden one day and had like a drowned mouse in a bucket <laughs> and showed it to her and she looked in and she goes huh that mouse is about the right size for that motorcycle <laughs> She, and she said, made some comment about how weird her brain is.
1: <laughs> yeah, so she wrote those. What about the dear Mr Henshaw? Oh so dear
0: Mr. Henshaw was the book that won her the Newberry Prize, and she'd won an honor, I think a couple of honors, I know one for Ramona and her father, which is still, I think one of the best children's books to talk about like financial problems, you know. And then maybe for something else, I don't remember. Ramona the Brave, maybe one to honor.
1: Was the par- were the parents divorced? Is that why? In Dear Mr. Henshaw.
0: Yeah, and it's so it's got like this real smart conceit. So the boy starts in first grade. He's got one book that he loves, and it's like ways to amuse a dog. Ways to amuse a dog, and so he gets a, um, an assignment from his teacher to write to an author, and so he writes, "Dear Mr. Henshaw." I licked your book. You know, what's his name? Lee. Lee, oh, right. And he doesn't like the spelling of his name. Lee Bots. Lee Bots. And then for the next several years, he gets that same assignment. And so he just writes the same author. He just reads the same book over and over. And so the first few letters are big gaps between them where he's writing him and then at one point they're supposed to do an author report and i'm sure this is based off letters beverly cleary got from her readers but he sent a bit the list big long list of stuff he's supposed to find out about the author to sent the questions to him and uh, the response came with a list of his own questions for lee to answer um but it's only the letters that Lee writes that are in the book. you don't read you don't read the responses, they're not part of it. so it's it's really yeah. neat to see him like grow up and also like grow as a writer because that's part of the story. And yeah, his parents get divorced, I think when he's in fifth grade and then he has to move. and through most of the book he's in sixth grade.
2: Yeah, and periodically he does letters to Mr. Henshaw, who you sort of get his it's a, it's really cool the way she just does the one side. But you get this sense of him as sort of this irreverent character. Mm -hmm. But so eventually Lee is like, I'm not going to write to him because I'm bothering him. So it switches to a diary for a while. But the diary is also formatted as pretend letters. To Mr. Henshaw, and then it goes back to letters, yeah. and it goes back to the diary, it goes back and it's And it's because Mr. Henshaw
0: had recommended that he start a diary. Yeah. And that he had started answering the questions that Mr. Henshaw sent him because he accidentally left a letter on his desk and his mom made him. She thought it was so rude of him to make his, this author do his homework for him, basically, that if he, he better answer all of the questions that he sent him. And so that's kind of also how you get to know Lee and what's going on. What were your thoughts about it, Jacob?
3: I really liked it. It was so funny, and I've, it felt really real. Like We've kind of talked about how she really captures like how it feels to be a child, mm-hmm. and I really felt that in uh, Dear Mr. Henshaw because Lee is such a relatable kid, and he, he experiences all these real problems at school, and it really captures his emotional state as he deals with these problems. And I think what really impressed me the most was just how the story progressed insofar as um not everything was wrapped up neatly in a bow. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like all the plot points came together in some amazing, like almost mythical way. Mm-hmm. It was it just felt like a real story and like there were certain things he just never figured out and you know, it wasn't the author that he's been writing to that turned out to be the the author for the, the prize. Right. At the end. Yeah. end. You know, it, it wasn't some mm-hmm. weird happenstance that all
0: worked out. So Yeah. Yes, you can see that in the hands of a less sophisticated writer that, yeah, it would have made it all it come together in some sort of big ceremonial scene or something.
2: And the parents don't get back together, yeah like there's this moment, right, where the dad show, the dad's a trucker who went long haul and then they got divorced, and the mom works at a catering business, and that figures into another plot about his lunch getting stolen. but the dad shows up, and there's this moment and i thought oh no is she gonna are they gonna get back together and she doesn't no she t- sees that road and just totally doesn't take it but y- you see lee grow up so much through the letters it's it's amazing mm-hmm. and it's so it's beautifully written it's so poignant i think about like all the nights lee is like sitting there listening to the pinging of the gas station across the street there's like this pinging sound and he stays up late thinking about where on these highways his dad is driving and what he's hauling and all this stuff mm-hmm. and It's a very California book. Yeah.
0: The one thing that she did do, and I was kind of happy about this, is at one point, so he has a dog when he's a kid, and when his parents get divorced, the dog goes with his dad on the road, so he has company, and his dad loses the dog in like a snowstorm, he jumps out the truck, and it's just like devastating, and his dad is so absent in the book, in his life, he never calls when he says he's going to call, and... But when he shows up at the end, the dog is there with him and he's like, how did you find him? And he said, I was on the CB radio every day asking if anyone had him. And like that was, I think, a really, first of all, way to show like the dog's not dead, which I like. (laughs) (laughs) But also to show that like, you know, parents could do like still love their children even when they're absent and failing at being a good parent
1: or if they can't express it yeah. verbally they can express it by actions mm-hmm.
0: and this came
3: after he had that conversation with his dad on the phone where mm-hmm. he's his dad tells him about the the dog and he's so upset and he hangs up on his dad yeah. and you know he's saying you know you don't call when you say you're gonna call and like you know he's obviously his dad's not putting in any effort and yeah i feel like that was his dad's attempt at reconciling yeah
0: yeah. Yeah, so good. You should read it. I will. I'll read it. <laughs> and then a... Strider is like a sequel to this one. Right. And I remember reading that too, but not that much about it. Not like I remember stuff about Ramona.
3: One of my favorite parts in Dear Mr. Henshaw is, as uh, Austin mentioned, there's this saga of his lunch being stolen, <laughs> like over and over and over again. And he's so. Upset and devastated about it because they're stealing all of, like the best stuff. Yeah, and, his know, mom
0: gets like really good stuff from the cater caterer she works for.
3: Yeah, like professional quality like desserts and food, and <laughs> people are just like taking it out every day. And he can't figure out who it is because they're sneaking in this area that he can't see, and he can't like turn around and watch it. Mm-hmm. So he comes up with this idea of putting in um, an alarm system into this like big clunky like lunchbox. So when the person opens it up in class, like it'll set off this alarm and everyone will know who it is. (laughs) But the problem is, is that they don't do it that day. And so he gets to the lunchroom and he
2: has this box and he's like, oh, no.
0: (laughs) (laughs) When I open it, the alarm will go off.
2: I love the characters in this book, too. Even some of them might really minor characters, but like Mr. Findley, the, the janitor, the janitor. Lee has this real thing where he like doesn't think anybody sees him. He's very, very lonely, and nobody sees him, and slowly he starts to dawn on him. Mr. Findlay sees him. There's the librarian character, mm-hmm. Katie, who's the caterer. He talks mm-hmm. about her. She like,'ll like specially make him little things, mm-hmm. send him chicken lovers wrapped in bacon or whatever.
0: Yeah, he goes to school early because he doesn't his mom leaves the house early and he doesn't like to be home alone in the morning. Um, and so he he's like walks to school really, really slow because he's also not supposed to be at school early. And um, he talks about how he just like happens to arrive one day. when Mr. Finley is like raising the flag upside down. And so Mr. Finley like needs his help to do it every day because he's doing it wrong. And of course, like he doesn't realize that, you know, it's on purpose. Right. right. It's like, a you know, a way to involve the kid and give him something to do in the morning. But yeah really nice characters
3: yeah he talks about feeling like the the mediumist boy mm-hmm. in school about how he's like he doesn't excel in any particular area he's average height average look yeah and just doesn't feel like he sticks out or is noticed by anybody yeah and there's this moment in the end of the book where he's like I don't feel so medium anymore
0: yeah and he enters that writing contest and he doesn't win he gets like an honorable mention which was really disappointing to him but he ended up being okay with but I also think like the lunchbox saga too showed him that like everyone else is like oh stuff people stealing from my lunch too and like they all want alarms for their lunchboxes and he kind of makes friends that way.
2: Yeah, and he comes to like at the beginning he's he's obsessed with this lunch thief and he wants this alarm to go off and he wants to tackle them behind the partition where all the cloaks are the coats are and by the end he's sort of like glad that he never found out because yeah. he has. More empathy for whoever spent stealing from his lunch. He's like, maybe they've had a rough time too
3: and they needed the food more than I did.
0: I would give that book the Newberry again.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to tell you, Becky, that I found a a list of a hundred things you might not know about Beverly Cleary. And number 88 is as a library student, she traveled in a bookmobile run by the Portland Library Association. To bring books to rural families, she's been an avid bookmobile supporter and proponent ever since.
0: We had talked about, oh, wow. um, and I'm still really into this idea. But like when it was, I think the summer of 2020, it's just Jacob and I doing drive-through. We talked about like what we would call our like bookmobile, and we decided. We, we wanted to call it the BEV and name it after Beverly Cleary. Oh. And that BEV would stand for...
3: It was the Books and Education Vehicle.
0: Yeah. Oh, the I Bev. love it. Yeah. And we mentioned that to our steering committee. And I think everyone was like, oh, that's fun. We like that. So, um, I didn't even know that about how she was a bookmobile advocate. That makes it even more perfect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Does anybody have any other thing to say about our books or other books? I also remember as a kid really liking muggy maggie where if i recall correctly the main plot line is her learning cursive <laughs> and uh, she uh beverly clear mentions in the girl from yam hill about how like the writing system that they used at the time which was like a cursive system uh was like the bane of her existence i was a child who loved like penmanship and stuff um
2: Yeah, and her mother's really worried about her writing, and the teacher's like, everybody's going to write on typewriters soon anyway. Don't worry about
1: it. That was really important back then, Mm -hmm. like was someone's penmanship said something about them or their character. Yeah. (laughs) And they don't even teach it anymore now, so...
3: I grew up being left-handed and so it was my penmanship was kind of sloppy because no one in my family or any of my teachers were ever Uh left-handed and so like it was really hard for me to like mimic everything and so it was like I was just had sloppy penmanship and I just wrote in my own way Uh and then I learned cursive and that was a monster.
0: (laughs) There's a part in Ramona the past where she's like she's excited to go to school She's going to learn to read. like, And then when they don't learn to read on her first day, she's like, well, I don't, this place is okay, I guess. But where they're st- practicing their their letters, and she just picks up a pen with her left hand and starts writing on it, and her teacher corrects her and puts it in her right hand. And she says, I didn't know there was like a right or a wrong way to write. I just picked up the pen like with whatever hand was closest to it and wrote with that one.
1: Yeah, because they used to think... That was like the devil hand or something. And when I was still to this day, when I'm teaching preschool and we before before my library career, um, they used to we always let the kids pick, you know, whatever they want to do. there were still parents that would take it out of their left hand Uh and put it in their right hand to,
0: yeah, hold it the right way. I remember in first grade, so I write with, like, the pencil or pen resting on my ring finger of my right hand, and my first grade teacher being, like, so insistent that I hold my pencil, like, a different way, and then having, like, a conference with my mom, and my mom was like, what does it matter?
1: occupational therapists might <laughs> might know. They're, they're, I know that they are still very particular.
0: About- well, I still write the wrong way. My mom stuck up for me and told me I'd have to learn it the other way.
3: I will say one of the major disadvantages of being a left-handed person is like as you write, if you hold your pencil or whatever you're writing with a certain way, you basically just smear it all over the place. Yeah. Like
0: I try right. to write
3: on the whiteboard at work and it's just a miserable experience. <laughs> like I really have to work it.
0: Is it easier when you write like in Japanese?
3: Um, No, because I still (laughs) write, I still kind of write left to right as I'm learning it. Like, I haven't learned to do the kind of vertical right to left Mm. style yet. But yeah, I just, I remember like having all these notebooks that I would write in, and there would just be marks of smeared pencil (laughs) lead everywhere. And then it's all over my hand.
1: Yeah. Yeah, because you're going towards, you're rubbing whatever you just wrote going towards you. You poor self-paws. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they make special pens and stuff for left-handed, like that dry faster.
3: I'll have to look into that. Mm-hmm.
0: We'll get you some. <laughs> yeah, a friend of mine is left-handed, and she always gets those kinds of pens.
3: I just type everything. Wow,
0: how are you could do that.
3: I had a question about um, Henry Huggins. Mm-hmm. So you'd said that that connects to the Ramona.
0: Yeah, they like, live in the same neighborhood. Eh.
2: Well, there's a Henry and Bezas book, too. There's like, yeah, they interconnect, and he's in Ramona the Past and Ramona and Bezas. Yeah.
0: So when the series starts, like, Henry's older, and Ramona is, like, four, and she's real annoying.
1: But Henry and Bezas are friends, Yeah. correct? Yeah. Yeah.
2: I think she talks about in the introduction to Henry, one of the only things they changed when she uh- got the manuscript back on Henry Huggins and they had her do some changes, and in the process of doing those changes, she added some minor mentions of Ramona and Beezus.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I read that she had realized she only had characters that were only children, so she wanted to throw in a sibling there, mm-hmm. and when she was putting in Bezus's little sister, she heard someone outside call Ramona, <laughs> and so she goes, all right, that's your name.
0: <laughs> I've never known anyone named Ramona in real life.
1: No, me either. I had one little girl in my preschool class that looked exactly as I would imagine Ramona Uh and acted like that, (laughs) and we secretly
0: called her Ramona (laughs) behind her
1: back, but that was not her name.
0: (laughs) Uh, It'd be a lot. It's just a big name to live up to. Yeah. They've all gone through, like, lots of illustrators, too. I really liked, like, the original... Once. Yeah, I actually know someone so. who had like Ramona tattooed on her from the original. Whoa. Yeah. It's commitment. Uh-huh.
2: I like the Henshaw. I don't know if he did any of her other books, but the the Dear Mr. Henshaw illustrations oh, are really distinctive Paul Zelen- too. Zelensky? Yeah.
0: Yeah, he's a bit um he's it's done a lot. Very he's like a big deal.
2: I don't know. Line heavy mm-hmm. sort of drawings. On
0: that documentary they talked to one of the illustrators who's done some more recent publications, and how when she was illustrating the Ralph Ralph S. Mouse books, she got feedback from Beverly Cleary that um, Ralph's ears were too big and that she needed to get a mouse as a model. So she did, and I think they found a mouse, like, outside. On the sidewalk. Like a baby mouse. And so she, like, scooped it up and put it in a cage and, like, raised it, and it just sat on her desk the whole time she was illustrating the Ralph S. Mouse books. (laughs)
1: We <laughs> need an exterminator in
0: neighborhood. <laughs> it's like when you need Ralph S. Mouse, he will just appear there
1: you go, the magic of Beverly Cleary <laughs>
0: <laughs> alright, do you guys have any, f- any final thoughts about Beverly Cleary I think I'm going to finish, at least finish reading Girl from Yamhill, but I feel like I want to read more Ramona books, but I'm looking towards May and I'm supposed to read Moby Dick so <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I should Get started on that pretty soon.
3: We have a legacy member we need to bring back for that. That's a special event.
0: <laughs> yeah. uh, I have this theory that no one has ever read Moby Dick.
2: <laughs> They're all just nodding along.
3: I
1: think I have an abridged children's version if <laughs> you want to borrow.
0: <laughs> I'm going to read the whole thing, the real thing.
3: All 2,000 pages or whatever it is. Mm-hmm.
0: You watch the movie. Was there a movie? They made a movie based off of the... True, like a book about the true story that Moby Dick was based off of mm-hmm. called Heart of
2: Heart of the Sea, the sea. or In the Heart mm-hmm. of the Sea.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's probably older Moby Dick movies too.
2: I'm definitely going to finish my own two feet. I'm really interested to, I liked the girl from Yamhill and there's a lot of stuff that's going to happen in this. She, she just got to California to go to the community college with her a bit more freewheeling aunt and uncle. And so this is going to cover, you know, library school and her getting married and her starting to write. So I'm excited.
1: Yeah, I want to do the memoirs. I've had Girl from the Hill for a long time, and it gets putting off <laughs> since I've been in school. But uh, yeah, after I graduate.
2: She handles, that was one thing I forgot to talk about, but she handles the stuff. I guess this is true of all her books. But she handles some of the heavier, real adult stuff in the books really well in the memoirs too, which are sort of feel pitched a little older, but the miscarriage and some real heavy stuff happens in those books and she handles it so well. Yeah. I would like to go and back and read Henry
3: Huggins and uh-huh. Ramona. I don't know if I'd necessarily read the whole series, but I'd like to
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know
3: get a feeling for each. Yeah. Probably the memoirs while I'm at it.
0: They had made like a Bezus and Ramona movie a few years ago with like
3: Was it Selena Gomez?
0: Yeah. 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 She played Beezus. It's hard
1: for me to watch those because you have in your mind Mm -hmm. such a vivid picture of what they look like and sound like that it's hard to see other people. Yeah. Although they've done plays, I believe. I think you're right. And Beverly Cleary said that she only likes to see the plays... When real children play the children roles, not when uh, adults, adults play them. Yeah. There was
0: a Ralph Mouse show when I was a kid, a Mouse of the Motorcycle show. I kind of remember that. Yeah, the main thing I remember is like the credits.
1: That's a funny thing to
0: remember. Because <laughs> it was like the mouse. like Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hmm, I'm going to look that up. Well, thanks everybody for coming on, talking about Beverly Cleary. This has been really fun. Mm-hmm. Thanks for having me. Yeah. yeah. So next month is April, and we're going to be reading David Rakoff.
2: David Rakoff. We're going to be focused on poetry. It's National Poetry Month. We're reading David Rakoff, who wrote a lot of fiction in verse. He was and and sort of humorous essays. He he was a big contributor to this American Life and NPR and stuff. So I think it'll be a little bit of a lighter reading schedule before we embark on Moby Dick. <laughs>
0: All right. Thanks, everybody. Uh, You've been listening to Your Shelf or Mine.
2: Or Mine. Or Mine.
0: I'm Becky. I'm Joanne.
2: I'm
3: Austin. And I'm Jacob.
0: Bye.
3: Bye. Bye. Bye.
0: Support for Your Shelf or Mine comes from the friends of the Longview Public Library, the Longview Library Foundation, and listeners like you. Your Shelfer Mind Jingle is written and performed by Megan McKeldery from A Song For You. Find Megan online at ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldry. That's M-E-A-G-H-A-N-M-C-E-L-D-E-R-R-Y. ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldery.